Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content at Stack Overflow. And today I have a very special episode. I am coming to you from Apple's campus. I was out here for WWDC, some big hardware announcements on the consumer side, and then, of course, lots of stuff in the State of the Union that is interesting to developers. So today we have two guests here from Apple who are going to help walk us through a bunch of what they announced and how it's going to hopefully improve the lives of developers who are building apps in their ecosystem. Gentlemen, you want to introduce yourselves? Thanks for having us. Uh, My name's Chris Thielen. I'm the product manager for languages and frameworks here at Apple. And hi, I'm Josh Schaffer. Uh, I work on a lot of our Swift frameworks here at Apple. Great. So I think the first thing that jumped out when I was watching the State of the Union was macros. You know, in my sort of limited understanding of this, they're a notorious feature in C and C++ for adding (laughs) complexity, but also really powerful. Can you talk folks through why you added them and how they work? Yeah. So I'm glad you started with C and C++, because if folks are familiar with preprocessor macros from C and C++, you know, forget what you know. Um, you know, <laughs> preprocessor macros in C are uh, essentially their own language. They're very opaque. You can go ahead and say pound define main and just change it to something and see what happens when you try and compile your code. <laughs> right. Um, in designing Swift macros, you know, one of the design principles behind Swift is to offer you know advanced features, but to make sure it's still easy for folks who are just getting into Swift or for folks who don't necessarily care to engage with that feature. And macros, I think, are a really good example of that. Mm. You know, with things like at observable and Swift UI or at model and Swift data, you can just add the annotation. You don't have to necessarily understand how it works, but right. you, you can understand how it works. And to your, to your point about, again, preprocessor macros, there's a terrific ability in Xcode to actually expand the macro to, to see what you know, exactly the code is. You can mm-hmm. even step into it, um, as Holly showed in the platform State of the Union. So right. transparency was important. You know, macros are written in Swift. They produce valid Swift code. They're type checked. Uh, they're actually syntactically aware. The transformations that they apply work on like the abstract syntax tree using the Swift syntax package. I mean, it's it's pretty cool stuff if you haven't had a chance to play with it, I'll, I'll say. Yeah, the other thing that's really cool is um, the code before the macro expands has to be valid Swift code to begin with. It has to fully type check. And, uh, and so when you, as a developer, are using these, you can be, you know, confident that your code has to look normal right. before the macro is expanded too. So you're not going to end up with some kind of super weird macros that end up making your code look like it's not real Swift anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things Holly said that I thought were interesting was using an annotation as sort of like the structure of the code to generate new code that's built with your project. In a sense, like, do you feel this will help to prompt you know, developers to give them ideas and directions that maybe they wouldn't have gone before? I think one of the, the biggest things it's going to help with is just making APIs easier to use, mm-hmm. you know, as, as like the, call it the consumer of an API. I mean, right. there's a lot of APIs where you're, you're excited about the functionality, it's maybe recommended by the community, or it's well known to be a good library to use, and then you start going through the README, and there's about 10 steps that they want you to do in terms of, you know, set this up here in the context, and mm-hmm. add this config file, and then do X, Y, and Z, and there's a lot of boilerplate code generally, and so... One of the things that I think macros are really nice about is, is it gives that library the ability to inspect your project, to go ahead and add some of the code that needs to be added. So hopefully APIs are easier to use, hopefully they're more expressive, 
and in a way that library authors can take advantage of without having to open a pull request on the Swift compiler itself, <laughs> right? You know, which is which is a, an effort. So I was there live, and uh, you were talking a bit about Swift data. So I'd love to get into that. And I think there was a line about using macros within Swift data that actually got some applause. <laughs> um, maybe it had something to do with uh, simplifying the sort of property wrappers and making it easier to uh, cutting down on the number of those, but. Tell folks a little bit about the announcements around the Swift data side of things and how that yeah, also might interact with macros. Yeah, I think there's two steps to that. Even before we get into Swift data, there's the ad observable macro, which mm-hmm. I think was the first place that uh, we got a, a, there was a bunch of applause from it. Uh, and, and that one was big because, to the point Chris was just making, it lets the library author provide a bunch of things where it can generate code that otherwise the developer would have had to write. Right. So if you were using SwiftUI before, you had to conform to the observable object protocol and then anything in your object that you wanted SwiftUI to be able to observe changes for needed to have the at published property wrapper put before it. And with observable, you just write the one annotation on the type, at observable, and that's it. You don't have to do all the other, uh, mm. other stuff. So it's, it's both less typing, you know, less boilerplate code, but also less error prone. Like you, right. you're going to have the right thing happen uh, mm. without you having to do a bunch of extra work. So that was huge. And, and then Swift data just builds on that to go even further. So, you know, if you replace that observable with that model, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to generating the observability uh, code that the ad observable one does, it also adds support for all of these persistence features, for undo and redo, for, you know, a ton of other stuff that you would have otherwise had to write manually. And, and it's all encapsulated in that one model macro. Right. Uh, that is not magic, right? Like, as Chris was saying, you can expand it and, and see all the code that it was generating and understand what it was doing. <laughs> it's, it's magic without the inscrutability, you know, maybe <laughs> right. is, is maybe the way to put it. Like, one of the things that I think is particularly cool with at Query in particular, when you're using at model in your class and you're, you're actually hooking it up, all your data to a, a view in SwiftUI with at Query, if the underlying data changes, your view re-renders as you would expect. You know, you don't have to like respond to a, you know, data change event or something like that, right? You just, you, you get that observability. And yeah. the super cool thing beyond that is that it will only re-render when data that you actually read changes. So if in your body method you read two of the 10 properties on your object, when those other eight change, we're not going to re-render uh, your body, mm-hmm. which was uh, one of the limitations of observable object before is that we didn't have that level of granularity in the observation. And so you could end up with uh, extra work happening unnecessarily. Right. That, that this right. just defines a way. So I mentioned C++ at the beginning, and I know one of the things you talked about was adding Swift to C++ interoperability. What was the idea behind that? And, you know, how would that change the way developers in the Apple ecosystem can work? You know, there are pretty large ambitions for Swift, truthfully. Swift from day one has had interoperability with, with C and Objective-C, but there's a lot of code, you know, especially system code. I think developers on the App Store, games, I think in particular, have a lot of C++ code. Mm. Where we would like developers, you know, it's a benefit to developers to adopt Swift. Swift has a lot of safety features that C++ doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the goal behind C++ interop is to make it easy to start adopting Swift incrementally. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to completely rewrite your C++ project or, gotcha. or askew C++ entirely. But you can go ahead and start using Swift where it makes sense. And then, you know, hopefully continue to adopt it as time goes on as you build new features. Yeah, and, and just as with C, as you're doing this incremental adoption, um, Swift uh, provides a very high-performance language uh, that can take what you would have been doing in C++ and, uh, and bring it to Swift, maintain your performance, but add the safety. Yeah. It's a really great way to incrementally move 
in, into the Swift ecosystem. It also, if you're if you're a C++ developer, and one of the things I would, I would encourage folks to look at is what it looks like to iterate over a collection in Swift of your of your C++ collection. Just the the syntax is very nice relative <laughs> to the the C++ iterators. Yeah, I do remember seeing a few high end games being shown as some of the hardware and the Apple Silicon being announced before the State of the Union. So obviously, if folks want to start developing games or porting things over, that would be you know really useful to them. All right, so let's talk a little bit about a few of the other things that you focused on. One of them was widgets and app intents, just that widgets are playing a bigger and bigger role, that they're across, you know, a broader spectrum of sort of the hardware surfaces. Can you tell folks who may not be familiar a little bit about how those work and then what the intent of app intent is there (laughs) um, to, you know, help make it easier for developers? Yeah, I mean, so widgets are, uh, are a very cool architecture because it's a way that we've uh, been able to view content out of third-party apps and put them in system spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a key part of that is because there's so many different apps that might want to be contributing to these spaces, we don't want to have to have them all running all the time as part of displaying standard things like home screen and lock screen. Right. Uh, and so with widgets, we can have these widget archives that are, are built from SwiftUI but archive the view content without having to have the app running so that they can be displayed uh, all the time. And then uh, we've married that now with app intents to allow them uh, to not only show information but represent actions that should happen when they're interacted with. Mm. And so these archives can be displayed and uh, no process can be running backing them until the point where interaction happens. Gotcha. And when it does, we invoke an app intent, launch the, uh, the extension that produced it and can run the code. And so this is a really great way that we've been able to tie this, this declarative offline view rendering to actual interaction that, that brings up live code and, and performs actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it even can work uh, across devices because with the remote widgets on Mac, we can send those, uh, those view archives over to the Mac. And then when interactions happen there, we can send the, the request to invoke the app intent back to the phone, perform right. the action, and update the UI remotely. So it gives us this really flexible model for displaying UI and enabling interaction in these places that it previously wouldn't have been possible with, uh, with standard uh, mechanisms. Yeah, it's great because, right, the value of a widget is that it's always persistent. You know, it's there even maybe, you know, when something, the, the device is kind of asleep, but you want to be able to really quickly just get into an interaction there. It's great for app developers too, I think, because you know if you go back to just the original app model of your entire app is behind that app icon, and the right. only way to access the functionality is to is to physically go there. You know, we have Apple Watch. You know, you have the lock screen. I mean, it's nice to give developers, I think, the opportunity to have glanceable information. Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of a win-win, right? The users can see the information that they want without having to navigate to the app. You know, developers can service their app in more places. It's yeah. it's just, I think, very nice overall. Yeah, I mean, it's really great that like. Now you write one thing, you write these widgets, and it lets you bring your app's content into so many new system places. Like with, right. with the new standby mode, you can get in there, uh, iPad lock screen, Mac right. remote widgets. There's just like the, the investment in this one widget that you build takes your app into so many new places uh, that it otherwise wouldn't have been. Yeah, we talk a ton with developers about the idea of flow state and context switching. You know, mm. that's more specific to the kind of work they're doing, but it seems like it would be wonderful on desktop, like you said, to have widgets that are there, but then also be able to quickly interact with them without having to dive fully into an app and, you know, maybe lose some of that concentration that you have and then have to go back into your IDE. Yeah. So another thing that you announced that hopefully will make it easier for developers to guide users through the app and get the most out of it was TipKit. Can we talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a, an increasing number of apps, both uh, Apple apps and, and third-party apps, that are helping to uh, educate users about how parts of their apps works by, mm-hmm. by displaying little tips and information to guide you in, in how to 
use the app. Right. And there's a lot of complexity in getting that right. Like you don't want to overwhelm the user with too many tips. You want to make sure you're getting them at the right time. Right. You don't want to do it across uh, multiple devices. If you have an iPad and an iPhone, teach them the same thing two times. Mm. So by wrapping this up in a framework, we can provide a, a standard way to describe these kinds of tips that handles all of that complexity automatically. So you don't, you can educate your users on the things that are most relevant to them without overwhelming them with information in a really standard and convenient way. Yeah, I thought some of the most interesting things about that was that you mentioned the idea of, you know, the frequency, the context, you know, the state of what they have and haven't seen, or even like the depth of experience that the user has, it would be aware of all those things and guiding them through it. And so not, you know, annoy an experienced user or overwhelm, you know, a beginner. Right, yeah. It comes with these eligibility rules so that you can sort of use your own heuristics to make sure that the right tip is shown to a user. I mean... You know, one, one example I heard was the calculator app has this great feature where you can swipe to undo one of the numbers that you've typed. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, that might be a tip that you would want to show. You don't want to show it if someone has swiped already right. because that's probably <laughs> going to annoy them. Yeah. But then you probably do want to show it if you see them, you know, going backspace, 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 and then typing in the number <laughs> again because clearly they don't know about it. So it's right. nice that you can, you can set up those sort of eligibility rules. Yeah, for sure. So... There was a little bit of talk about Xcode and, you know, what you can do there with the CI/CD integrated across all Apple platforms. You want to dive into a few of the things that you're excited about that you announced and you think will improve developers' lives on that front? My favorite, and Josh, you can tell me what your favorite is, but one of my favorites, I think, is, is the new test report. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, you, you make a commit. If you're, if you're using Xcode Cloud, well, I mean, you, it works locally, of course, but if you're using Xcode Cloud, Xcode Cloud can go ahead and run your UI tests, let's say, across just a fleet of devices. Right. And then you get the test results back. There's a new insights panel at the top. So there's common failures, like the same assertion message keeps coming up. You can see that, and so you can fix your fix your errors more quickly. And then there is a, I mean, just delightful is, is the only word, <laughs> uh, video of your UI test. Like mm-hmm. you can scrub through the video. You can just watch it as a video if that's the kind of thing you enjoy watching. But right. you can see in the timeline, you know, there was an assertion here, there was a user event here. I mean, it's 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 a very nice feature. Very slick, I think. Yeah, I remember seeing that during the demo with the wonderful Birdbath app that y'all built. <laughs> when is that coming? Do you know when that's coming out? Backyard yeah. Birds. I believe <laughs> the source code is I believe is the source code is up now. Okay. Yeah, get it. Yeah, get, right, your, get it your backyard, backyard birds. birds before yeah. It's, yeah, before it's got a your pay, feathered friends pay, pay are to play available. On the inside, right? <laughs> before they start adding all those goodies, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. You had mentioned before, right? They might have to dig around in the code to sort of understand it, and now, literally, with that replay feature, they can say, "Oh, the user clicked here, and then yep. clicked there, and that's where the error was." So. Yep. And you know, there's even a nice heat map view. So as as the number of tests that you're hope, hopefully writing expands, you can go ahead and, and quickly navigate it. It's it's really it's a really nice feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the value in your tests is is in being able to have them run and see and process the results. So uh, being able to see that more succinctly and have a great insight into uh, into where your errors and, and issues may be across multiple devices, especially as Chris said with Xcode Cloud. Yeah, it's huge. So there was a bit about expanded map kit support, and that was one of the interesting ones. Talked a little bit about improving animations. That's sort of like a key area for UX and being able to translate the velocity of a gesture into an animation and use keyframes to kind of define the motion and pitch, the speed of the camera. The demo that I really liked was in the map, you know, traveling through the map, understanding from overhead, oh, this is the walk, I'm the guided history tour I'm going to take through San Francisco today. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. Um, can you talk a little bit about, yeah, how you built that and what you'd be excited to see people do with it? Yeah, I mean, the animation changes this year. There's there's a ton of really cool stuff. And, you know, the first thing that it starts with is the fact that we changed the default animation in SwiftUI. It's, mm-hmm. it's been ease in, ease out basically since 
the original iPhone right. uh, has been our default animation. Uh, so changing it is a pretty big thing. But Springs provide a ton of benefit over that. I mean, we've had them available for a very long time mm-hmm. uh, and used them extensively throughout our, our UIs. So making them the default really just is, is a great step forward. But it set us up to be able to do other things like this automatic transition of velocity from your gestures into the animations. Right. Uh, because now if you have a Swift UI gesture and say you're dragging something around and when the gesture completes, you make some state change that results in that motion continuing we have tracked the velocity of the gesture during the interaction and then set things up so that the spring that gets kicked off automatically mm-hmm. will start with the same velocity. So right. the, the transition between gesture and, and animation is completely seamless now, which, you know, it's just the way it should be. If you, like, flick a scroll view, uh, yeah. the deceleration starts at that same velocity. Like, that's that's how it should yeah, feel. that's one of those things that makes, or no, not makes or breaks an app, but makes it feel great you know when you return to it it totally and it's always been possible but having these things be the default and just happen automatically just makes it so much easier to to get that uh you know expected right uh, yeah for a beginner developer who hasn't thought all that stuff through to have it native yeah and and we've always wanted animations to be very simple to create and use in swift ui a lot of people i think with user interfaces they think about the look right but the the feel comes from the animation right and so it's it's really important that you can dial those in correctly i mean not to go into spring animations too much but like <laughs> to just be able to you know sort of tastefully say this should bounce twice you know right. sort of it adds the feel i think that you're going for and that it's just as important um, i think as the look of the application yeah and it happens so much more now like you know if you go back 10 15 years like anim- uh, uis were a little bit more static things tended to be like you would set up your ui and they'd be there and that's about where they stayed And and so many of our interfaces these days, there's just a ton of adjustment motion transitions as things change. And and the animation between those states is is hugely important to preserve context and and help people understand what's going on. So having that be as automatic and natural as possible is is an important part of building modern user interfaces. Right. So there's a very cool consumer-facing feature where you're now building yourself sort of like a contact card that you can exchange. Mm. But I think also there was a mention of dropping data from one app into another using some of those features. Can you talk a little about how that works and how developers might take advantage of that? Yeah, there's there's really actually very little that developers have to do to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had the share sheet for for quite a long time. AirDrop, of course, has been around. And so now you can use the same functionality, you know, the same code that you've written for AirDrop, like ShareLink in SwiftUI. And don't quiz me, Josh, on the <laughs> UI kit one. UI, UI activity items configuration. Ah, I, need, I need to know it. Um, you can use that same functionality that's built into the system, you know, to bring two phones together and, and get that airdrop experience. That's cool. Yeah. All right. I have to go there. We have to talk about vision OS and spatial computing. We can stick to what was out there. I'm not going to try to drag any details out of you that won't be, you know, out there until six months later. But, you know, some of what was said was that Swift UI and Reality Kit and AR Kit, you know, those will now also all sort of be extended into Vision OS. So people who are already familiar with a lot of these tools will be able to kind of hit the ground running. Can you talk about how you accomplish that? And, you know, for people who would be interested in building, yeah, an app that would work in this, you know, kind of totally new paradigm for Apple, how they would go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, if you have an existing app and it's using, you know, Swift UI, UI Kit, you can, you can recompile it for Vision OS and bring it over and, and start to uh, add new features there. Uh, and when you're ready to take advantage of some of the you know the new platform specific stuff like adding Z depth uh, or or bringing you know integration with Reality Kit for 3D models and stuff, all of those new APIs are available in SwiftUI and and really easy to add to your existing apps. Just like with our other platforms, you know the goal has been that the the same set of APIs in SwiftUI should be available and do the correct thing most natural across all the platforms. Mm. So if like you're using the navigation stack on iPhone 
you know, that same API is available across all the platforms, does the right, most natural thing on the platform that you're on. Right. And, and then you can add uh, and augment it with you know, platform-specific functionality for things like adding depth. And it should be said, the same tools, too. I mean, a lot of folks probably remember that first moment programming for iPhone where you're in Xcode and you set the run destination to your actual physical hardware and you hit the button and then <laughs> it shows up and it's this kind of magical feeling. You can, you, know, you can use like the Mac virtual display while you're using Vision OS. You can click run in Xcode with the destination set for your device, and then the window pops up next to you. I mean, yeah. it's the same feeling. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting the way the apps would sort of natively launch in that shared space. And, it, you know, it was a sort of virtual desktop in your room, but it's mm-hmm. flat. And then what you talked about was Windows volumes and spaces being the way that you're going to make those feel more native to that environment, right? Yeah, and of course, like the other cool tooling thing that worth noting, though, is that, um, you know, if you're developing on your Mac, you've got the full Xcode previews uh, support available as well, which has, you know, a virtual space that you can right. see your, your app in, whether it's a window, volume, or space, uh, you can test it in there and, and see it live in Xcode while you're editing, yeah. just like you can on the other platforms. Mm-hmm. Right, with, with full environment support, too, so you can go ahead and change the lighting of the room to make sure that it looks correct if the lighting was low and things like that, so. Very cool. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask. You're obviously not going to answer, but, you know, have you two uh, been wearing those amazing goggles at work? And uh, how, how much productivity have you gained? They're not going to answer this question. They're I, looking at their feet. I cannot <laughs> wait for developers to uh, start writing apps and, and see what they produce. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I am Ben Popper. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you enjoyed the program, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. Yeah, thanks for having us. You know, Christopher Thielen, the product manager for Languages and Frameworks. And I would just encourage everyone to check out Platform State of the Union. Very, it's good every year. It's very good this year. Too. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Josh Schaffer. I, I work on uh, Swift frameworks and tools at Apple, and I totally agree with Chris. Uh, check out the sessions and, uh, and everything that we've got this, uh, this year. It's a lot of great stuff. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon.